0: Welcome to the New Books Network. So thanks, uh, Paul, for joining me today to talk about uh, your book, The Art of Chinese Philosophy. Um, So I wanted to begin by asking uh, just kind of how you, I know you've been working on this stuff a long time, but how you came to working on Chinese philosophy in particular, and then also the project of this particular book.
1: How I got interested in Chinese philosophy is that I opened some books and um, discovered that they were very interesting, and that was the beginning of of a lifetime commitment. I didn't quite expect it. Um, in, you know, I was always interested in China, so in school I was reading a lot about Chinese history, Chinese language, uh, and I thought I needed to read the great classical philosophers and, um, I never stopped. Now, how I started this book is an easier question to answer. I've been teaching <clears throat> an introductory seminar on Chinese thought at Penn, uh, since my very first year there. And after, you know, more than two decades of that, I felt um, I had my own interpretations of all these texts, and um, I thought they were worth publishing. But it took a long time to write. The idea germinated probably about 15 years ago, and uh, I thought it would be easy to write, and then I sat down and I realized that the book would be pointless unless I had something new to say. And for vast stretches, I didn't yet. So I took my time, um, and I'm glad I did, because uh, at this point, I do think, um, you know, like it or not, I'm the only person who could have written it. That's my perspective and my perspective only. And 15 years ago, I would have borrowed more from other people.
0: So, what uh, what guided your choice of texts for this book in particular? So, that, you know, the the selection of, of texts. I know you do you know the some of the standard like the Analects, the Dao De Jing, things like that. But why these texts in specific?
1: So, I think those are the eight most important ones. I didn't have a set number, but eight does work. Um, and you know, my criteria are they constantly refer to one another, um, either directly uh, or through, you know, unmistakable allusions or problematizing a philosophical position that would have been apparent to any ancient reader is coming from um, this other text. Some of them are known from tombs. Some of them are rare in tombs. Um, but, you know, I don't think anyone would argue with, uh, with, with those eight. You could add a ninth, but I don't know which one it would be. Whichever text comes in ninth on the list of the most influential classical philosophical text is miles behind number eight. There are some other military texts, but philosophically, I think Swinza is the most original of them. Um, That's probably the most uh, unconventional choice, but I think it's important. It's partaking of the same philosophical discourse. I think it's aimed at very similar readers, um so uh and you know it's a a magnificent book the chinese of suns is among you know the greatest it's about the greatest chinese you'll ever read uh so i felt i had to include that one and students have always loved it um um you know it's short and philosophically maybe not quite as deep as the other seven But I I think it qualifies as a philosophical text, and as I said, it's it's certainly participating in that discourse. It's using the vocabulary, it's playing the rules of the game um, to present a a perspective on on, on philosophy that comes from a military point of view. So those eight weren't hard to choose, and then dividing them into three sections wasn't really hard either. So you have what I think are the three oldest of the eight. Uh, and what they have in common is that they do not yet have a concept of the Tao as a um, cosmological notion. They'll use the word Tao, but in a sort of benign sense of the right way to act. Um, in Mordza, actually, it's not even necessarily the right way to act. It's just the way someone acts. Could be right, could be wrong. And then the, there's three in the middle, Lao Zhuangzi, and Sunzi, which uh, all seem to be aware of this new uh, interpretation of Tao as um, you know the, the cosmic order or something like that. And then there are two at the end of this period, um, I called them two titans at the end of an age, because they both look back on everything that's been achieved over the two to two and a half centuries before uh, they were working. That's Shunzhen. And Han and they're also aware that this period of um, political disunion is coming to an end, and they're um, they're presaging what kind of uh, what kind of world uh, they think will and should succeed it. So, dividing you know, choosing the eight wasn't that hard, and dividing them into three sections wasn't wasn't that hard either.
0: So one of the things you talk about in the uh, in the first chapter is the is the is the nature of these texts. Um, you talk about things like the importance of the commentarial tradition, which is really uh, which is really interesting, and the kind of the differences between these texts and things that you see in in, in certainly kind of like more modern uh, Western uh, Western thought. Um, what do you think? What is the what do you think the nature of these texts is compared to some of the things that you know people may be more familiar with in the in the West, such as like the ancient Greek text?
1: Well, they're closer to ancient Greek texts than to something like Hume or Kant. The the, the main contrast I was making in that chapter is with um, you know texts that we read in a philosophy class, where we don't have any significant dispute about authorship. Uh, whereas all eight of these texts um, are authorless, both literally and figuratively. Uh, Schrünze and Hanfvede probably wrote the bulk of the material that's in the texts that bear their name but they didn't write the book as a book in both cases somebody later in the case of shinza we know who in the case of hanfeid we don't know who uh but in both cases somebody later uh gathered together the uh the writings um and 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 edited it into a book and for the first six you know we don't even have that i i, I really don't think uh text like drangza or Laozum can be attributed to a, a single author. They're more like the products of a of a long tradition. I think that's the same for Modza too. So that's a that's a big difference, and it um, it affects our interpretation. Um, we can't appeal to knowledge about the author. We even have to think twice about appealing to coherence if it's not to be taken for granted that a single mind uh, produced these uh, these texts. The contrast with ancient Greece is um, harder for me to comment on. I'm not a specialist on, on Greek philosophy. I, I think there's going to be more similarities there, um, for example, with, uh, with, with the dialogues of Plato. But uh, a big difference in the Chinese case and something I mentioned, I felt that philosophers might roll their eyes, but it is important. It's the significance of the palace library as an institution. A large percentage of the, of the text's that we read from Chinese antiquity and therefore a large percentage of the philosophical texts went through a kind of an editing process that was pretty systematic at the Imperial library um, um, soon after, you know, within 200 years of the end of this period that uh, I don't think there's any analog for that in the Greco Roman world. There's a Roman empire, but um You know, I don't want to talk through my hat because, again, that's not my my area of expertise, but I don't think there's a single imperial library in um, the ancient Mediterranean world that had such a profound impact on the uh, production of philosophical texts.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the things that's interesting about this that that I always kind of think of as a somewhat similar is the, in the commentarial tradition in uh, in ancient Indian texts, right? Um, because there, right, you, oftentimes you need the commentary to understand at all what's going on with the with the original text, a sutra or something like this. Um, and here, I think a lot of people, a lot of philosophers, in particular, don't often look to the commentarial tradition uh, connected to some of these texts because because they maybe they can be, seemingly can be understood as more standalone. What, what is your what do you what do you think about what, what's your view on the commentarial tradition in that sense do we think do you think it's necessary for us to understand these texts or, or is it extraneous or
1: certainly not extraneous <laughs> and this is uh, you know this is a, 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 a big quarrel that I've had with people in the Chinese philosophy field um, the distinction between text and commentary uh, for some of these texts is is imaginary so Lao Tzu um, again, before the the Wang Bi commentary that pretty much set it in stone, Laozi would have been transmitted with a commentary because otherwise you don't know which tradition of Laozi you're talking about. It's the commentary that determines the tradition and the um, differences in um, the interpretations of these traditions, but sometimes also the differences in the wording are pretty significant. So there really is no such thing as the Laozi. Um, if anybody tells you, you know, the philosophy of Laozi, you got to say time out which Laozi. And I don't think philosophers are in the habit of doing that. I think they're in the habit of reading Laozi again as though it were, you know, some kind of uh, authorized pristine text without any textual problems and the commentaries are just the accumulated opinions of various people which you can, you know, accept or not accept or, 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 read or, or choose to ignore. But for Chinese, for some classical Chinese texts, Laza is a good example. You just can't do that because, um, the, the commentary is the, let's call it the, 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 the tissue of the tradition that produced and preserved the text in the first place. If you cut that all out, you, you have something that's, um, that's, that's rootless and, um, you know, um, not the way, not the way the text was intended to be uh, intended to be received. We, you know, a, look, a quick look at history. I mentioned this in the um, chapter two, uh, uh, chapter also. It explains why we have these commentaries, and that is that the the texts were usually written uh, with underdetermined graphs. Or they would have been simply memorized, you know, without any, uh, you know, without any need for a written document. And sometimes the graphs are um, ambiguous. Sometimes they're open to multiple interpretation. Or if you, you know, memorize a verse, right, sometimes there's a homophone or sometimes a phrase could be understood in different ways. In... Uh, I I think what's going on is that in in earlier periods you would learn this text with a master who would explain to you orally what's going on in each line. Oh, this graph, well, our tradition understands it in this way. Oh, this line, you probably don't know what that means. Well, our tradition understands it in this way. And again, this is uh, related to the impact of the empire on the production of Chinese philosophy. With that new society, the modes of transmitting texts changed. And your exposure to a text like this didn't necessarily come through, um, you know, direct oral instruction at the feet of a master anymore. So you needed something to make up for that, um, because otherwise, you know, otherwise the the text has no anchor, and that was the that was the commentary. The commentary tells you, oh, this graph, you're probably wondering what it is, since it can be read in five different ways. Oh well, we we read it this way, and. You know, n- no single commentary is, is, is uh, necessarily authoritative because they all represent a distinctive perspective. But ignoring those is, you know, to, to borrow uh, shamelessly a metaphor from Confucius, to look at one corner and ignore the other three. <laughs> right,
0: right. So one one thing you talk about is the way the kind of these uh, the Chinese philosophical texts have been received in the in the West and our philosophical tradition. And one of the really things interesting things I think you, that you talked about early on was this idea of the role of deductive argument and how you don't really find this so much in the uh, early Chinese texts. Um, do, do you think this is this is the main kind of reason for the for the kind of historic neglect of uh, of Chinese Chinese philosophy as philosophy in in our tradition? I certainly
1: think it's one reason. Um, another big reason is sort of like the self-confirming biases of, of Western philosophy. Mm. So Mm. we decide what philosophy is on the basis of certain, um, Western texts and traditions. Um, and then we look around in the rest of the world and whatever seems to conform, okay, that's philosophy too. But, um, it's not necessarily as good because it's, it's, it's fitting an alien definition. And, um, that you know, that method also excludes uh, a lot of rich philosophy that's happening in other traditions that isn't beholden to you know Western definitions and, and priorities. So I've always been allergic to that uh, to that regimen. Um, but I agree with you that the um, the, the prevalence of non deductive arguments. In classical Chinese philosophy, has alienated some Western readers, and to me, the dead giveaway is that in the late 19th and early 20th century, when Chinese intellectuals themselves were dealing with the uh, you know the crisis of modernity, the impending crash of the imperial system, and so on, uh, and one of their uh, programs was to Go back and take stock of Chinese history and see whether there are any uh, traditions that are logical or philosophical or that, you know, that would pass muster according to uh, European definitions. And they started wringing their hands because they didn't find much. Well, to me, that's the giveaway. And one of the things that they, that they would wring their hands about was that, you know, we don't have deductive thinking. We don't have logical thinking. We don't have syllogisms. There's no, you don't even have a pre-modern Chinese word for syllogism. Um, you know, to me, that argument falls flat. There's no pre-modern Chinese word for religion. There's no pre-modern Chinese word for philosophy. That, that, uh, that's a, a very limited argument. But you can understand why in the period from like 1870 to 1920, roughly speaking, that that seemed to be particularly urgent. So one of the things they focused on was that uh, China didn't have, you know, something like the, um, you know, Aristotle's, uh, uh, you know, exposition of syllogism and so on. Uh, so I think it's one reason. I'm not going to say it's the only reason. And of course, I, I, I make the point in that chapter, I'm not saying that there's no deductive uh, reasoning in Chinese philosophy either. There are, there are quite a few examples of it, and that's important to remember because it you know, refutes the, uh, the canard that classical Chinese philosophers were incapable of deductive reasoning. Okay, they weren't capable of it. They could put together nice... Um, deductive arguments, and I gave a few examples, a couple of them are pretty complex. So when they chose you know, other kinds of arguments, that was a real choice. It's not because they weren't capable of, um, of deductive reasoning. Uh, there, there must be some reasons why uh, they chose other kinds of argumentative forms, and that's behind the title The Art of Chinese Philosophy. Um, I think... Reading and, and, and interpreting Chinese philosophy is an art, and my approach to it is more like my approach to interpreting a poem or a painting than interpreting a modern philosophical text where I don't usually expect to find much artistry and where I usually blame the author if I don't find the argument um, impressive. Whereas the expectation in the case of Chinese philosophy is that if you don't find the argument impressive, well, maybe your first instinct shouldn't be to blame the author. Maybe you need to, uh, again, to borrow shamelessly a metaphor from Confucius, uh, turn around and seek the reason in yourself. (laughs)
0: Right. One of the interesting things about deductive argument, I think we could we could say, I mean, it's it's hard to associate it with with philosophy in, in particular because a lot of the people in in Western philosophy too. I mean, there's a lot of texts where we don't find deductive argument in the Western tradition that still gets accepted as philosophy. If we look at like work of Friedrich Nietzsche or something like this, right, um, you, you don't find a whole lot of deductive argument, but it's still accepted, right, as philosophical.
1: <laughs> oh, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, <laughs> you know, the notion that philosophy is the same thing as deductive reasoning, that was obsolete a couple thousand years mm-hmm. ago. But in the 19th century, you know, there are, there are real examples you can point to where, um, you know, both Chinese and Western intellectuals are, you know, bemoaning the scarcity of deductive reasoning mm, in the Chinese right. tradition and, and asking in all seriousness whether that's a reason for China's decline in the 19th century. Mm, it's pretty right. absurd, but <laughs> it's not the only absurd idea that came out of the 19th century. <laughs> right.
0: So I want to go back to this, this uh, distinction you make, which, which I thought was a really interesting one between the philosophy of heaven and philosophy of the way, this kind of these two uh, um, sections that you set up. And it was it was interesting the, the the text you selected for that and how you talked about how these this conception of heaven and the way emerge in each of those uh, in each of those texts and sections. I, wish, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about it, the ways in which this notion of heaven emerges in these in these particular three texts and the way the way that the notion of the way or particular understanding of the way emerges in the text that you talk about in that second section.
1: We understand, it's a paradox, we understand the history of heaven a little bit better than we understand the history of the way, even though heaven is the much older concept. So heaven goes back to the Bronze Age. That's very clear from Bronze Age documents. Um, And, you know, even in the Shang Dynasty, the cliché is, well, the Shang had no concept of heaven. uh, But they had a concept of Di, um, which is like the deity, or Shang Di, which is like the supreme deity, And there are oracle bone inscriptions that describe the actions of of D in a way that's pretty similar to the way in the later Bronze Age um, inscriptions and and, and texts refer to heaven um, as an impersonal force whose uh, will affects um, the course of events on earth. So heaven is a pretty old notion, and what's going on by and large, in the philosophy of heaven books, which I identified as the Analects, Mordza, and Mencius, is to try to philosophize a very old concept. Um, Mencius, in particular, is the most skeptical of the three. Mencius doesn't deny that there's a heaven. um, Mencius even says there's all kinds of things that happen, even though no human being brought it about, how do we explain that? It must be heaven. But Mencius is also frustrated. Heaven's not behaving the way it should. Why do we have, you know, such political um, uh, uh, chaos and and immorality in society? Why is heaven allowing? Why is heaven allowing this? And also, there seemed to have been a belief in a five hundred year cycle um, of sage kings. This is probably related to a kind of an astronomical accident, which is that roughly once every 500 years, it's not a period because it's not a single astronomical event, but roughly every 500 years there seems to be a spectacular agglomeration of planets in a single portion of the sky, and before Facebook, and before light pollution, and before Netflix, uh, people observe the sky more carefully than they do today. So something like that would have really stood out to them. And, you know, it's in the sky, so um, so the idea that it's a sign from heaven is, uh, uh, is, uh, is a pretty obvious inference to make. And that's supposed to happen every 500 years, and it's supposed to be an omen that a sage king is about to arise. And by Mencius's time... It's been more than 700 years, and he even says, what's going on? There's supposed to be a 500-year cycle. Um, he doesn't go so far as to say, you know, heaven, you promised us. Uh, but um, he says that the only the only uh, uh, inference we can make is that heaven doesn't yet want a sage king. Heaven doesn't yet want peace. The other inference we can make is that if you do 500 years from the previous one, the previous one was roughly 10, 1050-ish, um, if you do 500 years from there, that's very, very close to the birthday of Confucius. So that um, offhand comment in Mencius that more than 500 years have gone by, there's been no sage king, is also probably the beginning of the whole uncrowned king legend, that Confucius should have been a sage. He was born at exactly the right time. He exhibited all of the um, you know, behavior that you'd expect of a sage but he couldn't become a king for whatever reason. And and Mencius is implying it's because heaven didn't want him to be. Heaven wanted us to suffer. You know, Mencius doesn't give any direct answer. That's why I say Mencius is the most skeptical of the three. Uh, Mencius heaven must must want us to to keep suffering for a couple more centuries. There's no other explanation. Right. The Tao, you also asked me about the Tao. That one's harder to pinpoint. So sometime in the 4th century... Uh, we see, um, it's, it's not in a single tradition, but it's an, it's a, a new, let's say a new understanding of a pretty old word, this old world Dao, which means road. Um, it had, uh, like the Greek word hodos, it had come to mean like the right path, the right way to proceed. Um, so you find even Confucius saying it in the Analects and he's not talking about, um, you know, the, the, the Tao as, the, as the, the cosmological pattern. He's talking about the Tao as, you know, good con- right conduct, something like that. Um, and then in the 4th century, we start to see a bunch of different texts exploring a, a different um, understanding of Tao as more than just the right path, but actually the fundamental pattern of the universe. So that understanding this Tao Will uh, empower you to understand the way the universe works, and of course, make you a um, uh, make you a pretty uh, a, a formidable person. Because you, armed with an understanding of the universe, will be competing with you know kinds of fools who think they understand the universe by going to Confucian school, uh, <laughs> and all their you know all they learn is is foolishness. Um, so it's very clear in Laozi, and, and um, another indication that. Um, this is aimed at countering the supremacy of Confucian thinking. Is that in Laozi the Tao comes first? The Tao is the mother. The Tao produces everything, including heaven. Confucians never accept that. So when Xunzi, who's um, you know quite comfortable with. Um, using the Tao in the sense of the the, the the fundamental pattern, timeless, unchanging, can be learned, can be observed, and so on. In Shrinza, it's the other way around. In Shrinza, heaven produces the Tao. Um, so even though Shinza comes at the very end of this period, he's not not willing to uh, relinquish the idea that, uh, that heaven is supreme, heaven comes first, and he sees the utility of a concept like the Tao, but he doesn't go as uh, he's not willing to go as far as a tradition like Laozi, uh, or I think implicitly Zhuangzi, uh, in saying that heaven is just a child of the Dao, like everything else in the universe.
0: Mm-hmm. So, one of the, the in the first kind of chapter that, here that you talk about these texts, you you discuss the uh, the Analects, and this is a, I found an interesting chapter because this is one of those texts that I always thought was kind of mi- very misunderstood by philosophers. Um, and could you talk a little bit about its, about what you take to be its role in the early philosophical tradition? Because what you often see, right, is this idea that you've got this first philosophical text and here's the kind of like something that's giving you a kind of uh, um, a, a, a overview of early Chinese philosophy and the first kind of uh, philosophical account of some of these ideas. What, what do you think is going on in the in the Analects?
1: So. One problem that I do take seriously is that I'm not so sure that it's the first philosophical text. <laughs> exactly. um, there are um, there are people in the early China field who are not usually philosophers, who point out that there isn't very good evidence that the text existed before the Han Dynasty. And pretty early in the Han Dynasty, but Han Dynasty nonetheless. And that's an important point. Um, it means that you can't think of the Analects as the textual fountainhead. Um, however, uh, I've written a, a controversial paper about this, and I think my position is the better one. Uh, however, I think the, the ideas and possibly you know even the, the material in this Han Dynasty compilation called The Analects, The Selected Sayings of Confucius, is truly old. So what I think is going on there, again, we're talking about the impact of the empire. The old mode of learning, you know, with a Confucian master isn't feasible anymore. So people think, hey, we better write this down. Um, Otherwise, it, you know, might get lost. They seem to write it down first for the benefit of the crown prince. That's where the text seems to originate. But I believe that the ideas are truly old and some of them, you know, to, to the best of our, of our understanding, might even go back to Confucius himself. I don't know how we would verify that. But the concerns seem like the concerns of Confucius' era. Uh, and there's a lot of um, Han Dynasty concerns, like omens and you know, how to organize an empire, or ritual divisions and so on, that the Analects really doesn't get into. So it, it doesn't seem to make too much sense as a, as a, as a Han Dynasty text. Um, so I, I think these are teachings that were well known in Confucian lineages and Confucian schools, uh, but had never been um, collected and, and and put in writing comprehensively because there, you know, there had never been a need for that if you wanted to learn the truth. Confucian traditions. And remember, the Analects is never just the Analects of Confucius. It's the Analects of Confucius and his disciples. There's plenty of passages in the Analects where it's a disciple speaking, um, and yet that's ratified by the tradition is almost as good as the words of Confucius himself, because they, they, uh, they make it into the text. Then there are cases where the, Analect, the disciples say something, and Confucius is like, no, uh, think through what you're saying, um, and gives a, a pithy response that explains what's wrong with what the disciple uh, said. So, um, you know, before this, uh, uh, before it was written down, there wasn't a need because if you wanted to learn that tradition, there'd be masters running around and you could attach yourself to one and then you would become equipped too after a course of oral instruction. Uh, there's there's plenty of evidence that there were, um, you know, master-disciple um, relationships. Uh, you know, that that's not a... Uh, that's not simply a figment of the of the tradition, um, but then there came a time I think when when that um, method of instruction didn't work anymore, and then I think people said, "Well, now we need to write it down." <laughs>
0: So what do you think, one of the ways that this is commonly, the Analects is commonly presented, and and I've done it like this sometimes myself, is to say, okay, let's take all these concepts. You know, we talk about Ren and Li and all these other concepts and see that as what the what the Analects is trying to instruct us about, right? Do you think this is, how do you think this was intended to be read? Do you think it was intended to be read in this way where we have all these concepts and we're trying to figure out what these concepts are, or is there something else going on? Here.
1: that's certainly part of it and um, you know one one proof that that's part of it is that there'll be a case where a, a disciple runs up and says hey Confucius is <laughs> the following Ren and gives right. some horribly right. overblown definition right. and, and and then Confucius also another indirect indication that Confucius thinks uh, Ren which I translate as humanity is a very important concept is that he never defines it um, anything really important he doesn't define Uh, And that, I think, gets to the main purpose of the Analects, which is to get people to think for themselves. And that's um, related to what I meant just now by philosophizing the concept of heaven. In the Bronze Age, the will of heaven, or the will of the ancestors, or the will of the spirits, this, this deity that I mentioned, that could be ascertained through a divination Uh, You know, whether it was oracle bone divination or other types of divination that were practiced. And we don't know whether anybody in the Bronze Age doubted this. But if they did, their words were not uh, transmitted. All we have from the Bronze Age are pretty confident um, assertions or representations of this kind of thought system in action. Uh, Let's consult the spirits. Let's consult a diviner. Let's consult... The Oracle Bone. And Confucius, I think it understanding the Analects helps a lot if you start with Confucius saying that's not working too well. The you know, we've been doing this ghost thing for a few centuries now. And you know, Confucius doesn't say this, doesn't say this explicitly, but I, I think it's it's hovering over the whole book. Uh, and it helps explain a lot of what's going on in the book. He doesn't deny that there are ghosts and spirits, but it, they're not too helpful. They don't help you decide what's what's the right course of action. They don't help you decide what's moral, what's immoral. We've been doing it for a long time, and the results haven't been very good. So Confucius is saying, well, let's try another way. Let's try doing the moral reasoning on our own and leave the spirits alone, um, you know, uh, respect on and are you respect the ghosts and the spirits but keep them at a distance.' They're, they're not helpful for the project that uh, we want to pursue, which is pretty clearly building a moral society with a sage king at the top. If the if the ghosts and spirits could help with that, terrific but but they don't seem to now, that prompted a response almost immediately uh, from moists, who are sort of a reassertion of this older idea that um, you cannot have a flourishing moral society with a sage king at the top unless you accept the role of the spirits. So that's, that's possibly the very first controversy in Chinese philosophy. Do we need to worry about what the ghosts think or not? The revolution of Confucius and his disciples is, they haven't been helpful, let's try another approach. And they... Um, the the conservative response on the part of Moists is this is heresy. The uh, y- you're going to go down in flames if you ignore <laughs> the uh, the wishes of ghosts and spirits.
0: This is interesting too because it, usually it's it's uh it's the Confucians who are kind of uh, uh, placed as the traditionalists and the Moists who are seen and they are in some ways and the Moists who are seen as kind of like disrupting this. Whereas here in this notion of on this view of ghosts, it's really the Moists who are kind of uh, arguing for the traditional view.
1: Yeah, Moists were revolutionary in other
0: areas, mm,
1: right. but in their belief in ghosts, they may as well have been in the Bronze Age. <laughs>
0: right. One of the things you talk about in the chapter on the Moza, uh, by the way, is this, is this connection. You talk about a connection between the, the Moza and Taoist groups, which I found very interesting. Could you say a little bit about that connection, about how, what this connection is?
1: So there's this tradition that Moza became an immortal, Hmm. And i I suspect the only reason why we have the text is because of that tradition. So why do we have the text, Modza? It's because it was preserved in the Taoist canon. If it hadn't been preserved in the Taoist canon, um, Moza today would survive only in fragments and hyper partisan fragments because the school wasn't represented by any friends um, after it uh, after it melted. And why? Was a text like Mozi included in the Taoist canon? My suspicion is that it's almost solely because of this tradition that Mozi became an immortal. And I have the same theory for Huananzi. Why do we have Huananzi? Um, Well, it's in the Taoist canon. And why is it in the Taoist canon? Because of the tradition that Leoan, the prince of Huanan, uh, became an immortal. So I, I think one of the principles of inclusion, there are many, and it's long and complex, canon but one of the principles of inclusion is if it's a text attributed to a, an immortal it's got to go in now uh, for for philosophers and intellectual historians the interesting question is where did we get this idea that moza became an immortal and there's one um, uh, one particularly revealing you know hagiographical account that says you know M- moza was sort of uh, hanging out in the wilderness and an emissary from heaven um, came down and, and handed him some uh, rare and and secret um, scriptures that's not a moist idea that that's that's a Taoist idea this idea of you know, just revelation uh, of you know, celestial scriptures through a kind of an angel or a you know celestial emissary. Um, it's speculative, but the account that that I gave in that chapter is well. What kind of a world do the Moists want? They want a world where um, heaven chooses um, its heaven chooses its uh, its representative, who's the king, and that's the most virtuous person, and that person chooses the the next most. Moral people; and those are the, the the three dukes or the three uh, patriarchs, however you want to translate that. And then they choose the next nine, and then they choose the territorial lords, and you know all the way down. So it's a it's a it's a pyramid of morality with the most moral person on top, all the way down to the bottom, or just ordinary people like us. And the whole system is enforced by. Um, a constabulary, uh, demonic, um, you know, police force. That's pretty clear in Moism, and that's pretty clear in Celestial Master Taoism, too. If, if you want to uh, redress a wrong or repent or appeal that your case is unfair, um, then you have to find a Taoist priest who can intercede in the Celestial bureaucracy on your behalf. Well, there's no classical philosophical tradition remotely like that, except Moism. It's not all that different from Moism. The, there are obviously some differences. Um, um, you know, Taoism is much later. Taoism uh, is more complex because it's uh, it, it comprises more texts and traditions, and it lasts a much longer time. So I'm not saying that you know Moism is just Taoism before Taoism. But of all the classical antecedents, if you're a you know if you're a religious Taoist, the one that looks the least unfamiliar to you, the the most like your perspective, um, is that of the Moists. So, that that may be uh, behind this idea that that Moza was chosen. Um, you know, not even Zhuangzi. Moza is chosen to ascend to Taoist heights that that. You know, even figures that we tend to associate as 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 patron saints of Taoism, um, uh, th- that they aren't even uh, admitted to. Mm-hmm. Mozi is accepted to a pretty high position.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you talk you talk a bit about the uh, the Laozi um, in uh, in chapter five, and you t- and you mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier in our discussion. But how this is a kind of different kind of text than than the other ones that you discuss uh, in the book. In part because of this kind of composite nature of it, and the, and, the, and the idea that there there are a number of different versions of this. Um, what do you think is going on there? Is this a, is there? Are they drawing on the, a kind of earlier uh, tradition, or what, what? Why is why are there this these, this variety of different texts, and and uh, what's the purpose of, of, of that?
1: If I could go back to Monza just for one second, and then, yeah. then I'll be glad to I'll be glad to talk about Laza. Um you know, uh, when I mentioned that I had to, to, the book took me a while to write. I had to, I had to sit and think for a while because I wanted to make sure I had an original perspective on everything. <laughs> Once is a good example, and a lot of people have read that chapter and they say, "Oh, I hate it." Um, <laughs> well, wh- wh- why do you hate it? Well, it's 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 not charitable. You make them out to seem like they're these uh, Bronze Age superstitious, credulous, whatever. Okay, be that as it may. Um, what's what's distinctive about that chapter is that I. Don't emphasize utilitarianism. So you know, I go through the passages in 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 Moza that uh, people have compared to Bentham, and and that that people use as a as a as a kind of you know, basis for reconstructing a Moist consequentialism, and 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 that's undeniable. I'm not I'm not saying that's an incorrect reading. I'm saying it's an incomplete reading. Um, you you you're not really getting. The full dose of Moism, especially what Moism meant to its practitioners and to its opponents, unless you take this business of uh, of ghosts seriously, um, and and uh, you know that that I think is pretty important. Uh, I, I remember attending uh, a, a a lecture at our my university's philosophy department. I uh, was one of the few I've ever attended, and. Um, This was a speaker who's quite an accomplished uh, scholar of Chinese philosophy who was talking about how you can include Chinese philosophy into your curriculum. Uh, And he said, oh, Moists, you know, that's utilitarianism. And uh, I didn't get a chance to speak, but I remember thinking, yeah, no. That's like a quarter at most of Moism. But it's a good example of what I was mentioning, uh, you know, earlier. You cut out the part that seems to conform to, um, you know, ideas and notions and priorities that Western philosophers privilege, and you just leave aside everything else. Um, and everything else in this case um, is is significant. Now you may not like it, and I I, just, I wouldn't enjoy living in the Bronze Age either. But it's it's part of the tradition, mm. and you're misrepresenting it if you just ignore it. Now, l- okay, go on. No, no, go ahead. I was going to move on to Laza, so if you had a... Oh, uh, no,
0: so I was saying, interestingly, it, it, interestingly, in philosophy, we sometimes do that with Western texts, too, right? We do that with Plato as well, right? We we cut all these things out where we think he's doing kind of arguments that are really philosophy, and then all the other stuff that's like mysticism or religion, we just kind of ignore that, right? <laughs> that's a very good
1: point, and historians call that presentism, <laughs> right, right. where you go back and you rummage through all the stuff that seems to relate to you in, in, in 2020, today, <laughs> right. November 29th, 2020, and everything else... Uh, Uh, not relevant. Um, and that, that is so misguided because you know, on November 30th, 2020, the present won't be exactly the same anymore and probably largely the same, but just think of how much our political culture has changed over the last five years. The the present does change. exactly. And if your engagement with the past is, is, um, you know, s- s- solely conditioned by the concerns of the moment, then um, my view is you're 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 deliberately ignoring, you know, willfully ignoring much of what the past has to teach
0: us. Abs- absolutely, that's what we're, we're misunderstanding the arguments that were there because we're neglecting all the other things they <laughs> had to say. Absolutely.
1: So why is Laoza a different text? It's a wonderful yeah, yeah. question. I wish we knew the answer. We don't. <laughs> we don't have enough. Uh, you know, the only way we could answer that question with certainty is to know exactly how the text came into being, and we don't. Uh, it's certainly not written by a wise old man named Laozi. That's uh, that's not believable. Um, the Guadian manuscripts, which um, were excavated quite a while ago already, almost thirty years ago. They um, gave us a tantalizing snapshot. Uh, these were texts that were included in um, a small tomb, maybe the tomb of some kind of um, some kind of teacher, low level aristocrat. The problem is that the tomb had been looted, so we don't know too much about it. But it includes three short. Um, I guess I would call them, you know, bouquets of um, verses that are now included in the 81 chapter Laozi. So what does it mean? Does it mean that the 81 chapter Laozi is the result of a process of accretion and back at the time of the Gordian tomb, which is about 300 BC, it hadn't, you know, fully formed yet? Or does it mean that someone around 300 BC deliberately selected his or her um, favorite flowers uh, from a larger collection and you know presented it as three little bouquets. I personally lean toward the former of the two explanations, which is that um, you know of all the classical texts, the one whose um, uh, Genesis seems to be most compatible with a the theory of accretion is that of Laozi. Uh, so so I am inclined to think this means that in 300 BC the text hadn't fully formed yet and it was it was it was still growing because then I mean, just a couple generations later when we get to the time of Han um, in Jelau and Ula whoever wrote them Han Fei or not there seems to be a larger text already so there seems to be some growth between 300, and whenever you want to date the Ulao and Jialao chapters, probably two to three generations later. Not much more than that, because they in turn seem to be older than Maungue, which uh, has a pretty firm date in the second century BC. So it looks like the the sort of nascent growing um, product of a very different philosophical tradition, as I said, one that is trying to dethrone Confucius, destabilize that whole tradition, um, and argue that they are giving you a contrived view of the of the universe um, instead of accepting nature in all of its terrifying brutality.
0: So. One of the things that, that I really wanted to ask you about, one of the, my, actually, my favorite parts of the book um, was in the chapter on, on Shunzi, where you talk about this uh, this view that um, that Xing, human nature, uh, or inborn characteristics, is or uh, evil um, in, in Shunza, as, as what you called a, quote, intellectual cul-de-sac, which I thought was a great phrase, um, and this kind of obsession with this and the reduction of Shunzi's view to that that you tend to see. Um, and you talk about it in in terms of the, the early text, but I found this also to be the case um, with a lot of Western philosophical engagement with Shunzi, right? Sometimes you'll see this come up in discussions of Shunzi, or in courses, or something like this. Where the only thing you'll see um, in covering Shunzi is this view that that Shing is is uh, is evil. What, why do you think this happens, and and how does this hold us back from understanding what's going what's going on in the Shunzi in general?
1: It happens because Neo Confucians used Shunzi as a foil. Neo Confucians were um, almost uh, exclusively Neo Mencians. And uh, what was Shunza most famous for? He was most famous for criticizing Mencius' theory of human nature, which is much more complex than human nature is good. Everybody recognized that. People were not confused about what Mencius' theory meant. Um, They knew that it was more complex than human nature is good. Um, but then they proceeded to read Shunzi as though it were no more complex than human nature is evil, uh, and you can you can see this in Neo Confucian writing that Shunzi is reduced to a foil. And I even suspect that before the Qing Dynasty, not many people read Shunzi because um, there's scarcely any commentary. Um, once you get to the Qing Dynasty, then then people who you know, scholars who've been liberated from Neo Confucian biases, then they start to read Shunzi seriously again. Uh, and in Tokugawa, Japan, there are there are some uh, some 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 good commentaries on Shunzi. But uh, in the Song and the Yuan and the Ming, there are not really. There are many more commentaries on on Mencius, Zhuangzi. You know, you can get a good sense of what those. Uh, philosophers were interested in, my dog is barking, she's very happy to be outside, uh, you can get a sense of what they're reading. And it doesn't seem to be Shunzi, so I even suspect that they didn't read Shunzi very carefully. Um, maybe all they read was the up uh, Pian, the um, the human nature is, is evil chapter. And I agree that it's an intellectual cul-de-sac for a couple reasons. Shunzi's theory is much more complicated than that slogan, <clears throat> There are some people who suspect that Shunzi didn't even write that chapter. I'm agnostic. Um, but there are Chinese scholars who, who make the point that elsewhere in Shunzi you don't find this, uh, this phrase, human nature is evil. You find um, more nuanced claims. Human nature is uncarved, human nature is malleable, which are closer to what Shunzi really believed. Um, and so it's it's been an intellectual cul de sac because it's attracted so much attention. It has served to denigrate Shunzi. Right? Why would you why would you emphasize this? Well, only in order to show that Shunzi is not as good as Mencius. If you're if you're a, a Neo Confucian, and it has led to ignoring, you know, the, the the really interesting chapters like the discourse on heaven, discourse on Rights, discourse on music. Um, however, you want to translate G B you know, resolving. Resolving um, obsession or resolving obscurity, something like that. But, uh, you know, shins is not the only text for which we've had some unfortunate intellectual cul-de-sacs. I think in the case of Moism, utilitarianism has been an intellectual cul-de-sac. Uh, it's a little bit richer, but it has also served to help people not read the rest of the book.
0: Right. So one of my other uh, kind of favorite parts of the book is actually, your book is actually the, the uh, appendix, where you've got this interesting discussion of the concept of qi. Um, qi is one of those things, like the, the, the longer I work on, on Chinese philosophy, the more convinced I become that qi is like the, you know, the, the central concept. Right? I've been working recently on the, uh, on the medical, uh, the early the Han Dynasty medical text. And you talk about the, uh, the different ways that this concept is understood in the early texts and, and why it was seen as a particular, particularly valuable concept in early China. Could you say a bit about, about this kind of role of qi in early Chinese? So there were
1: a couple of reasons why I felt I had to write that. Um, one of them is, is, is related to uh, one of the two projects I'm working on now, which is to bring to bear the tremendous gains in linguistics um, on our understanding of Chinese philosophy. Most people read Chinese philosophical texts with a linguistic awareness from about 1950. And over the last generation, I mean, it's, it's really been heroic. Um, a, a, a pretty small number of linguists have dramatically helped us understand uh, how the old Chinese language worked, um, how it sounded, what its, uh, you know, it's, 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 its syllabic system and so on. And is a good example of this. Part of the reason why you get so many different translations of qi is that people have been trying to define Chinese philosophical terms entirely by usage without considering etymology. And that's because until the present generation, there was no etymology to speak of. But you really need both. And if you just think for a minute about Greek philosophical terms, even Sanskrit philosophical terms, which can be much more complicated, usually the etymology is not in doubt. It's very rare that we come across you know, a, a Greek or German, or, or German, forget it, it never never happens. Uh, or even Sanskrit philosophical term and we just throw up our hands and say we don't know where the word comes from. You know, we always know where the word comes from. Um, well, she is a good case where knowing where the word comes from helps. And there's no doubt anymore that it comes from the word for breath. So then you can start to organize all of the different meanings that have arisen. And I'm not denying that there have been all these various senses. Of course, there have been. But it's a jumble um, without knowing that etymologically, there's no doubt that it's derived from the word for breath. So that's that explains its significance in medical texts, precisely as you say. Um, now, why was it a good idea? Um, a couple of reasons. But one of them was to help in this um, project of... Of de-ghosting society. Uh, a, a lot of the explanations um, for which Chi was pressed into service, uh, or a lot of the areas in, in need of explanation, let's put it that way, for which Chi was placed into service uh, had previously been explained by, um, by referring to ghosts. So um, in the case of medicine, uh, illness. Why, why are you sick? Well, there may have been multiple reasons. There may have been multiple reasons. Our sources are limited. But the theory that's best attested, the Bronze Age, very ancient theory that's best attested, is it's because a spirit has it out for you. Um, The spirit is offended. This, right. What we one of the things we have to do is find out what which spirit it is, so that we can try to guess what the spirit is so unhappy about. Maybe the sacrifices haven't been up to par, or maybe the the king's conduct hasn't been um, hasn't uh, been um, praiseworthy. And you know, there are a number of different sort of imagined mechanics the the spirit could invade your body, or the spirit could send some other spirit, like a demon, to invade your body. Um, And the idea of chi was, well, maybe we can come up with an explanation that doesn't rely so much on spirits. Maybe we can think of the body as a physical system, and if something goes out of whack with the substance of your body or the balances of the different aspects of qi. Because almost as soon as we have the concept of qi, we have different theories about the different types of qi, the different aspects of qi. Um, and those are not, those are not identical. There, there are different theories about how this works. Uh, but that, that led to the idea that health is the result of a good balance of a healthy store of qi. And if the qi becomes unhealthy, or the different aspects are not properly balanced, then that's what's causing disease, not some demon, not some irate spirit. Uh, and immediately you can see how that would affect things like diet. So if different aspects of qi are found in different foods, or, um, then maybe you can use um, the right combination of herbs or modify your diet to restore the balance, uh, in your body. And that's, that's one of the basic convictions of, um, of Chinese medicine, which is that, um, you're, you're using the, the medicine to restore a balance that you should have had initially, but you've lost for whatever reason.
0: So I wanted to ask you, uh, to maybe really close up what, 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 uh, what you're working on now, uh, what your, uh, kind of next, uh, next projects are.
1: So two projects, um, they're going to take me a while. What I'm going to do first is um, a book on classical Chinese aesthetics. And the reason for that is, you know, when you talk to people and they say, oh, I do Chinese philosophy, usually what they mean is ethics. Or maybe political philosophy, but, you know, in Chinese philosophy, ethics and political philosophy are pretty close. There is a huge literature about... Um, artistic expression, the the purposes of art, how you interpret art, how you judge art, um, that philosophers scarcely pay attention to. And I don't think there's a good reason. I, I, I can speculate as to the reasons, but they're not good. Um, and and the, the, the material is very rich. You know, I wouldn't, wouldn't be devoting time to it if I didn't think so um and so i i I think that's a that's a project i have to do um it involves a much broader array of sources you can't get by with eight sources i think that's part of the reason why philosophers don't deal with it um because you know chinese literati had a lot to say about art um many arts poetry music calligraphy painting even dance um even things like um Uh, landscape architecture if you go later in in time. So I'm going to have to restrict myself basically to the period up to about the Tang. I'll use some Tang sources. I I couldn't do more than that, first of all, because my my ability doesn't extend all through the Chinese tradition. You know, we talk about you know the, the Chinese tradition, Chinese history, Chinese philosophy. That's a bit like saying you know European tradition, you know European philosophy. Um, if the European tradition uh, went back to sixteen hundred BC, uh, it's 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 absurd. So you know my ability starts to taper off uh, around the Tang dynasty. And also the book would become too unwieldy because after that we have so many sources Uh, and literati tended to be pretty good writers. So it takes a very long time to, to read their work. Um, You know, if you're engaging it uh, seriously, but um, that I'm looking forward to that. It's based on a quartet of lectures that I gave at the Academy of fine arts, the central Academy of fine arts in Beijing. Uh, in um 2 years ago december of of 18 and um i you know i i had these ideas and 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 they invited me out of the blue and i was thinking okay this is the foremost um art school in china i've got to go um and i you know i wanted to see how they were going to respond because it's a very american perspective um it's both traditional and american at the same time so it's 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 based entirely on traditional chinese texts but it's not the way they're taught um, in China and the audience was, was great. I mean, these were members of the faculty, students, practicing artists, art historians. Uh, it was just the kind of diverse audience you would want if you were trying out some new ideas. Um, and the, um, the, the positive feedback I got from them, uh, convinced me that, that this is a book that I had to write up. So I'll be working on that in 2021. A lot of it is in my head, so I might actually be able to finish it. Um, if not, then I won't, I won't go crazy because it's, um, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a complicated book. And then the other thing, the, the second project, um, I alluded to that when you asked me about qi. That's going to be a handbook of Chinese philosophical terms um, that will um, lay out for philosophers everything that linguistics has done for us. So that when you get a, a term like qi the range of definitions that you're presented with is not everything from vital breath to psychophysical stuff to to I mean all the whole bewildering array of translations of chi that I listed in that in that appendix um rather you get a linguistically organized history of the word um that then also Goes into the significant philosophical usages, and for that one, I will have to stop at the end of the classical period. You know, simply because so many of these philosophical terms, like chi, um, they're like pearls; they just keep growing and growing and growing and growing because the tradition never dies. And as um, you know, later writers keep on using. Um, these concepts they keep on adding more and more nuances more and more um, connotations Um, Buddhism is also a huge source of of philosophical vocabulary especially for for Neo-Confucians so I won't be able to do more than what I conceive as basically the first volume of this that I can handle and the classical philosophers and maybe somebody else uh, will have to We'll have to pick up the thread from there. And that I, I won't be able to start that until I finish the aesthetics book. So that one won't be around for a while, but I have a pretty definite plan. Maybe something like fifty to eighty of the most important terms. And it will also be limited by necessarily by you know our linguistic knowledge. There are unfortunately still some words whose etymology is still unclear. It's very frustrating. Uh, and as I said, it's nothing you encounter when you read Aristotle or, or uh, or 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 you know even South Asian philosophy. Usually the usually the etymology is pretty, pretty well understood. And in, in China, we're still we're still struggling.
0: That sounds great. I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing those when they're when they're finished. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to uh, to thank you again, Paul, for, uh, for for sitting down to to discuss your uh, your book with me. Sure, it's been a lot of fun.